That's a wonderful video. It just reminds us why we need to be reaching out to people who have been part of the church, but somehow have gotten sidetracked along the way. I mean, you know, some, some believers have gotten sidetracked when it comes to church. I mean, some people have kind of fell out when COVID came, and maybe it was COVID that caused some people to get off track, or maybe it was some, uh, some other thing that has taken place, maybe a vocation, maybe an addiction, or maybe someone offended, offended somebody in the church, or maybe somebody's just got a wrong perception of the church, and so people have fallen out for some reason. But whatever the reason that somebody's gotten out of the church, Satan has been trying to separate believers from the body of Christ. He has been trying to, to distance believers from the fellowship of the body. And so we're in that kind of warfare right now. You know, how many of you like to watch Shark Week? Anybody? You know, Shark Week was just in July, just about, just a few weeks ago. Anybody watch Shark Week? I mean, I don't watch it all the time, but when it comes on, I like to catch it a little bit. And so it was, I was uh, during vacation Bible school, I think it was during Shark Week. And so when we would leave here about 10 or 10.30 at night or whatever time we left, I would go home and watch about 30 minutes of Shark Week so I could decompress, you know, <laughs> so I could just kind of get, get my mind cleared up. And so uh, when I was watching Shark Week, there was a documentary about the USS Indianapolis, and it was torpedoed on July 30th, 1945 by the Japanese during World War II. Now on that ship, there were about 1,200 sailors. 300 of them died in the torpedo attack. 900 men survived the torpedo blast, but then they were left in those frigid waters of the, uh, for about uh, several days, exposed to the elements. And so there were 900 men that were left in those frigid waters when the Indianapolis went down. Well, of those 900 men who survived the torpedo attack, only 300 survived the whole event and were rescued. 600 men who survived the torpedo blast died from dehydration, exposure, and shark attacks. Well, one of the main culprits in the shark attacks was the oceanic white-tipped shark. It was the main uh, predator who attacked sailors. And so I'd never even heard of the oceanic white-tipped shark, but they would prey on these sailors just like a, a wolf would prey on their uh, prey in packs. And that's how these oceanic white-tipped sharks operated. It was like they were like a pack of sharks. And what they would do is they would start circling these sailors and they would try to separate a sailor from the rest of the group and kind of get them isolated. And when they did, then that's when they attacked. You know, it just reminded me how Satan operates. He tries to take a saint of God, a child of God, and distance that child of God from the fellowship of believers so that he can then attack and then destroy that child of God. And I don't know if you realize it this morning, but we are in a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy, and his name is Satan. And he is after the members of First Baptist Church. Now, he didn't just start attacking the members of First Baptist Church during COVID in 2020. You know, we're about to celebrate our 130th church anniversary this coming October. Well, Satan has been trying to attack the members of First Baptist Church for 130 years. He's been trying to take members and distance them from the body of Christ for 130 years. And so that's why we're initiating Operation Abraham this afternoon at 5 p.m. Operation Abraham is an effort to reclaim those who have gotten distance from the fellowship of, of the church. And so uh, Operation, you know, I was thinking about Operation Abraham. It kind of reminds me of another military operation that took place some, some years ago in Uganda. And it was called Operation Entebbe. Some of you may have heard about Operation Entebbe. But on June 27th, 
1976, an Air France flight number 139 left Tel Aviv in Israel on its way to Paris. Well, in route, they had a stopover in, in uh, Athens, Greece. And when they stopped, they were transferring passengers and four passengers got on that Air France flight uh, in, in, uh, in Greece. There were two Palestinian militants and two members of the German revolutionaries who boarded the plane. Well, after Flight 139 departed Athens en route to Paris, uh, those two Palestinian militants and those two German revolutionaries hijacked that Air France flight. And they redirected that flight from Paris to Entebbe, Uganda. And when they landed in Entebbe, they went to an abandoned, deserted airport. And that's where they took those people. And they took all those 248 people from that flight moved them into that deserted airport and they began to separate them. And they separated them by their ethnicity. So they put all the Jews in one room and everybody else in another room. 98 Israelis they separated from that group. And over the next few days, they released all the passengers who were not Israeli. But they kept the 98 Jews isolated and they were using them as a bothering chip. The terrorist group began making some demands of Israel. And so they demanded that Israel release 40 Palestinian militants. And they also demanded that the United States would give them $5 million in exchange for those 98 Jewish captives. Now, if you know the story, the Israeli government reached out to the president of Uganda. His name was Idi Amin. Idi Amin was a very evil, very wicked Dictator, But Israelis felt like they had to try to reach out to him and see if they could get some support in rescuing these captives. But when they reached out to Idi Amin, they realized that he had already been negotiating with these terrorists. And they realized he was no help in helping to rescue those hostages. So at that moment, the Israeli Defense Forces quickly developed a strategic plan to reach, to reach out and rescue these hostages. And so that plan that they developed was called Operation Entebbe. And the strategy included three phases. One phase was to secure the abandoned airport. The second phase was to rescue the hostages. The third phase was to destroy the Ugandan uh, military aircraft so that when they left the country, there could be no counterattack. So three phases, pretty technical. And on July 3rd, at 11 p.m., Israel sent 100 special forces into Uganda to that airport in Entebbe. And when they landed, they began implementing all three phases of their strategy. And there was one group of commandos who their responsibility was to go rescue those captives in that uh, deserted, once deserted airport. And when they got there, they took a megaphone and they began to speak in Hebrew. And they said, we are Israeli soldiers, get down and stay down. We are Israeli soldiers, get down and stay down. Well, the captors, they didn't speak Hebrew. So they didn't know what they said. So everybody got down except for those who were the, the militants, those who were the, 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 the hijackers. And so when those commandos went in, they just knew to shoot everybody who was still standing up. And that's what they did. But in the process, four hostages were killed during the rescue and one special forces commando was killed. His, name, his last name was Netanyahu. You might know his younger brother as Benjamin Netanyahu, who was the prime minister, former prime minister of Israel. Well, these commandos successfully rescued those hostages early July 4th, 1976. 200 years after the United States declared their independence. It's an important date. Well, later, 
the nations begin to criticize the Israeli government for not negotiating with those militants. And then they criticize them for invading another country to rescue the hostages. And let me just say to you this morning, we are in a battle with a terrorist. His name is Satan. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and we cannot negotiate with him. He is the evil force in this world. He's holding people who are believers captive, and we need to rescue those who he's holding. And if we're going to rescue those that he has in his captivity, that means we have to invade his space. We have to be strategic. We have to be organized. And we have to get into the world and reach out. And so this morning, we're not talking about Operation Entebbe. We're talking about Operation Abraham, the battle for believers. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Genesis chapter 14. If you use a digital Bible, then you just turn on to Genesis chapter 14. And let me just say, this is part one of a two-part message. And I'm only going to give you one point this morning. I know you get excited. Just one point. I mean, you're already thinking about getting over to Southern Fried. Just one point and two subpoints. Next week, you get the rest. But you're going to get one point this morning. And so while you're turning to Genesis 14, let me just give you a little bit of background. Now, you remember that last week we talked about Genesis 13 and we talked about Lot. And if you didn't hear that message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it on our YouTube channel. But Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. Lot's heart was bent toward the wicked city of Sodom. For, uh, Sodom. For him, it was financially beneficial, but spiritually it was detrimental. But he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Well, in the opening verses of Genesis 14, we see how Lot became part of Sodom's drama. Now, I'm not going to read those first few verses of Genesis 14 because I can't pronounce all those names and I can't pronounce all those places. But your assignment for next week is to read Genesis 14, verses 1 through 9, and be ready to cite those names and places when you come, okay? Everybody okay with that? I hope so. We'll give you your test when you come next week. But let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Lot was living there in Sodom. A revolt was about to take place he didn't know about. The very first time we ever read about a war in Scripture takes place in Genesis chapter 14. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, two kings, they were paying taxes to a foreign king, the foreign king of Elam named Ketelamor. Well, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah decided, hey, we're not going to pay taxes to King Cadillamor anymore. We're not going to give him more, any more tax money. We're going to rebel against him. We're not giving him anything else. And so when King Cadillamor uh, realized this, he aligned himself with three other kings. And he decided to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and take care of some business. These four kings were in alignment against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, when they realized that King Ketelamor was on his way, they said, hey, we need to get an alliance as well. So they began to align themselves with three kings. And now we've got four kings against five kings. And there's a battle about to take place. Well, the king of Sodom said, hey, we need to make sure that we have this battle here at the Salt Sea, which we know of as the Dead Sea. He said, we need to have it here because that will give us some kind of like a home field advantage because we have these asphalt pits here and the enemy won't know where they are, but our guys will. And so when they come, they're going to fall into those pits and we'll have a military advantage. And so he believed that, uh, that his troops would, would recognize those pits and they could avoid them, but that's not what happened. 
What happened was that King Sodom, the king of Sodom's soldiers fell into their own pits. Isn't that how it is sometimes? We set pits for everybody else and we fall into our own pit. Well, that's what they did. And so when that happened, they realized they were in a major crisis. And then some of them began to fall to the, to the enemy. And then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah realized they needed to flee to the mountains as a place of refuge. Well, in all that commotion, guess who was left behind? Lot and his family. Lot and his family. And everything he owned was taken captive by these foreign kings. Now you might say, well, you know, Lot kind of deserved that. I mean, he was being selfish. He didn't care about anybody else but himself. And now he's found himself in a, in a world of trouble. And he deserves it. You might say, well, he made his bed. He needs to lie in it. I don't know if he needs to lie in it or lay in it. But wherever it is, he was in it. And there he was in this place. He was taken captive because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, being influenced by the wrong people. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 14, 10. So if you've got your Bible open, we're going to start there in verse 10. After we get past all those complicated names, it says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they, meaning the enemy, the foreign kings, King Ketelamor and his alliance, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. But verse 12 says, They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son who dwelled in Sodom, and his goods, and then they departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, and he's talking about Lot here. He referred to him as brother. He armed his 318 trained servants who were, with, who were born in his house, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and then he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and he brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now what happens? We are reading here that there are some things worth fighting for. Would you agree with that? There are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that should motivate us to action. And Abraham was willing to go to battle to, re get, to reclaim his nephew Lot. These pagan kings had taken his nephew Lot and Abraham was willing to fight to get them back. Abraham could have said, you know, I'm a farmer, not a fighter. He could have said, you know, I'm a, I'm a saint, not a soldier. I don't need to be getting into all this battle. I mean, I need to let Lot take care of himself. He could say, well, you know, I told Lot not to go down there. I told Lot to stay away from greed and from worldliness. He could say, well, you know, I'm not surprised he got captured. In fact, I was kind of expecting it. But that wasn't Abraham's attitude, and that was not his approach. Abraham knew his nephew had been taken captive and he was going to take some action to get him back. Now, when I think about these pagan kings, they kind of represent how Satan operates. He likes to take the children of God captive. He tries to isolate and separate. And I believe that Satan has taken some believers captive. And so we need to be in the battle for believers and I want you to know some things about Abraham. I'm just going to give you one main point and a couple sub-points this morning. But if we're going to be successful in this battle for believers, then we need to have some things evident in our lives. And number one, and you'll get to number two, three, and four next week. But number one, I want you to notice that Abraham 
was a spiritual man. He was a spiritual man. Do you remember where Abraham pitched his tent? You know where Lot pitched his tent, right? He pitched his tent towards Sodom. He was looking for gold. But where did Abraham pitch his tent? The Bible says that he pitched his tent toward God. He was moving toward God. In Genesis 13, verse 18, you, you can just write that verse down and look it back up, but Genesis 13, 18 says that Abraham moved his tent and went, went and dwelt by the terebinth trees in Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built on the altar there, and built an altar there to the Lord. Do y'all remember what Mamre meant from last week? Do you remember what Hebron meant from last week? Mamre meant fullness or fatness. Fullness. Hebron means fellowship. So what do we see from Abraham? He wants the fullness of God and he wants the fellowship with God. Those are two things that he longed for was the fullness of God and, and the fellowship of God. Now that's what we read in Genesis chapter 13. That's where Abraham's at. He's under that terebinth tree. But then when you look in, in Genesis chapter 14, in verse 13, look at what it says. Then one who had escaped from Sodom, he came and told Abraham the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre. In Genesis 13, we see that Abraham wants to be in the fellowship of God. He wants to be in the fullness of God. And then in Genesis 14, what do we find? He is still there in the fullness of God and in the fellowship of God. He wasn't willing to move. You know, I asked myself when I, when I read that, I said, why wasn't Abraham willing to move? I mean, he just stayed put. He stayed put in a place of fellowship. He stayed put in a place of fullness. Why, did he, why was he so reluctant to move? Well, I kind of went back to Genesis chapter 12, and I think I understood it. In Genesis chapter 12, I mentioned this last week briefly, but you know, there was a previous time in Abraham's life where he wandered away from God. When he kind of walked away, he kind of went astray. Did you know that Abraham did that? You might not even realize he did it. But in Genesis chapter 12, the Bible says that God told Abraham to leave his town, to leave his city, and go to a place called Canaan. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He left and he went to Canaan. And while he's in Canaan, everything's going great, and all of a sudden a famine takes place. And so here's what, here's what happens to you and me, just like it did to Abraham. Something happens in life, and we feel like God's out of control. There was a famine in Canaan, and all of a sudden... Abraham felt like God had lost control. And so he said, I need to go to Egypt so I can make sure that I'm safe from the famine. So he left Canaan, the promised land, and went to Egypt in search of food. And when he did, he got out of fellowship with God. When he did, he got out of fellowship with God. He got out, out of the fullness of God. He went to Egypt out of God's will. He went looking for food, but he found himself in fear. The Bible says that, that whenever he got down there, he was afraid that the people there would want to take Sarah to be their wife. And so he felt like they might kill him. So in the process, what does Abraham do? He lies about who his wife is. He says, she's just my sister. She's not my wife. Because he's trying to save his own life. He's out of God's will. And at some point during that process, Abraham realizes just how far he's drifted. Maybe you've drifted. Do you know what Abraham did when he realized he'd, he'd wandered from God? He went back to the place where he last had fellowship with God. He went back to the place where he last had fullness with God. He went back to that place. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 3, it says this. And this is him coming back. 
And he went on his journey from, from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Did you see it? He went back to the same place. And then it goes on to say in verse 4, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. If you've drifted from God, if you wander from God, you need to go back to the place where you were when you were in fellowship with God. You need to go back and start doing the things that you did when you were in fellowship with God. I mean, do you remember what it was like to be in fellowship with God and having the fullness of God in your life? And sometimes we wonder. You know, Jesus told the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, they had wandered from God. They had left their first love. And Jesus says to them, remember therefore from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. What's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying go back and do the first things. What were you doing when you were in close fellowship with God? That's what you need to do. Were you reading your Bible every day? Then you need to go back and do the first things. Were you, were you spending time in personal worship with God? Then you need to go back to the first things. Were you keeping a journal of how God had answered your prayers and you'd go back and reflect on answered prayers? Were you serving Jesus in the body of Christ? Were you serving along other believers? Were you going on mission? Were you attending church faithfully? What were you doing when you were so close to Christ? Go back and do the first things. You know, it's the, same, the same is true for our marriages, isn't it? I mean... Sometimes couples will drift apart. And then when you begin to inquire what happened, you begin to realize what the pattern was. Here's the pattern. They quit doing things together. They forget what attracted them to each other because they're no longer spending that quality time together. They no longer go on trips together. They no longer spend moments together doing things that they enjoy. They stop doing the fun things that reminded them of why they're attracted to each other. And so I think that if, if God were to speak to you, he would say, go back and do the first things. Go back and do the first things. Remember the things that attracted you to each other. And that's what you need to do in your relationship with God. You need to go back and do the things that you did when you were close to him. You know, in Genesis chapter 13, it says that Abraham went back to where he was at the beginning. You know what he did? He went back to the place of worship. He went back to the place of fellowship so that he could be in fellowship, so that he could be in worship. He built an altar and he worshiped God. Abraham was pursuing God. You know, so many times we're pursuing the world. Lot was pursuing gold, but Abraham was pursuing God. A few years ago, and some of you have been to Honduras on mission trips, but I don't, I don't know how many years ago it's been, but I was on a mission trip to Honduras and I remember talking to one of the translators there. I said, you know, America's wealthy. Y'all are not as wealthy. I wonder what the difference is. I mean, you have the same natural resources that we have in America. I mean, you have a tropical climate. You have fertile soil. You have mountains. You have an ocean. You have a lot of the same uh, things that we have in America. What's the difference? And one of those translators said, well, whenever our ancestors were looking for Honduras or coming to Honduras, we came looking for gold. But when your ancestors went to America, they went looking for God and God has blessed them. And that's where Abraham found his place, searching for God in a place of fellowship, in a place of worship. And so that's where he was. You know, it's so easy uh, to drift away, so easy to pursue other things. Let me ask you, are you pursuing God? 
I mean, what are you pursuing? Are you pursuing God? Are you pursuing gold? What's on your heart? Abraham was looking for God. He wanted to be in fellowship with God. Now, I want to tell you two things that will happen. Two things that will be evident in your life if you have fellowship with God. Two things. And I want you to write these things down because I believe it's valid. Number one, when you have fellowship with God, when you have authentic, genuine fellowship with God, you will have a deeper heart for God. You will have a heart for God. Did you know it's evident when you're not in fellowship with God? Did you know that? You might say, well, nobody knows when I'm out of fellowship. Nobody knows that I'm going astray in my heart. It is evident when you are distant from God. You say, how can you know? I'll tell you how you can know. You lose your love for the body of Christ. You lose your love for God. You lose your love for being in fellowship with God. You lose your desire to be in worship. Think of what David said in Psalm 27.4. It's what a wonderful verse. It really expressed David's heart. In Psalm 27.4, David said, One thing I've desired of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so that I can behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His holy temple. Do you hear the passion, the zeal? When you are in fellowship with God, you will have a deeper heart for Him. David's heart was to be in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. But when you're you're out of fellowship, you will lose your desire to be in church. You know, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 84 too, My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. When you are in fellowship with God, you have a heart for God. You long for God. You have a deeper thirst for God. When you're in fellowship with God, you have a heart for God. You know what you have a heart to do? You have a heart to worship God. But you, when you are in right relationship and fellowship with God, you have a desire to serve Him. You have a desire to worship and you have a desire to serve. Do you want to see somebody who's wandering away from God? You look for the person who's vacated all their service to God. You want to see somebody who's wandering away from God? You look at, at a person who doesn't desire to be in worship of God. And they're, they're wandering. Somebody asked me just a few weeks ago, can a person be saved and not go to church? That's a good question. I said, well, yeah, a person can be saved and not go to church. But you cannot be uh, out of fellowship with God or excuse me, you can't be in fellowship with God and be out of church. It's contingent. Now, I'm not talking about those who can't go to church because they're physically unable. I'm talking about those who won't go to church because they're spiritually unwilling. There's a difference. A better question would be, why would you want to be saved and not be a part of the body of Christ? Why would you not want to be a part of the body of the one who who saved you? You know, Hebrews 10.25 makes a very encouraging word for us. In Hebrews 10.25, the writer says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that the day is approaching? When you look at this world, do you not feel like the day of the Lord could be at any moment? How much more do we need to be 
in fellowship with other believers. I don't think there's ever been a time more critical than now to be part of the fellowship of the body of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together even as you see the day approaching. The day is approaching. It's getting near. How important is it for the saints of God to be in fellowship with other believers? Do you know why we need to be in fellowship? Because we cannot fight the devil on our own. Do you know why we need to be in fellowship? Because we can't battle for believers on our own. We need the body of Christ. And so when you are in right fellowship with God, you have a heart for God. Let me give you another thing real quick. When you're in fellowship with God, you will not only have a heart for God, but listen, you will have the heart of God. You will have the heart of God. Do you know what it means to have the heart of God? Do you know what it means to have God's heart? It means that you, you like what Jesus likes. You love what Jesus loves. It means that you long for what Jesus longs for. It means you look for what Jesus looks for. And what does Jesus look for? I want to give you a verse. Write this down. You can put it in your margin. Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the heart of God. To seek and to save that which was lost. Now I'm going to tell you, later on, maybe sometime today, I don't know what version, what translation you read, I don't know, but go back and look at it. Did you know in some versions it does not have that verse in it? Because they would say, you know, the early manuscripts did not have that verse in it, so they don't include it. It just has a little footnote. This verse is missing. It wasn't included in some, you know, manuscripts. If I was going to leave out a verse, it wouldn't have been that one. Are you with me? Because I think we can be very confident this morning that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, if I was going to leave out some verses, I can think of some I would leave out. Like, for example, obey your government. I think I might leave that one out. Or paying your taxes. I think we could leave that verse out. Anybody okay with that? You know, there's some verses I would like to leave out, but that's not the one. Jesus has a heart for looking for the lost. And when you have the heart of God, you look for the lost and you lead them to him. That's what you do. I want to give you another verse. Matthew chapter 18, verse 11 says this. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then verse 12 says, and what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountain to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, Assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that one sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has a heart for those who are going astray. He has a heart for the one that wandered off. Yes, we need to look for the lost, but we also need to battle for believers. We need to battle for those who have been captivated by this world or by whatever force has taken them away. And Jesus here is talking about a sheep that's wandered from the fold. Did you know that as a believer that you can wander away from God? Did you know as a follower of Christ that you can go astray? You say, well, how can that be? You know, I think about the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Robert Robinson, and Steve, you might appreciate this. He was a hairdresser before he really got, you know, the Lord started working on him. But Robert Robinson made this statement. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. You ever felt that way? I'm so prone 
to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you ever felt this world pulling on you and making you want to wander from the God that you love? It's easy for us to wonder. And that's why we need to be in fellowship. That's why we need other people to go to battle for us. And maybe this morning you're one of those who wandered. Let me just say this. If you are wandering from God, he wants you back in the fold. He wants you back in fellowship. He wants you back in service. Now, some people say, well, you know, I'm a little afraid if we start reaching out to people, we might offend somebody. We might, we might uh, make them, you know, not want to be a part of the church. We might push them farther away. And some people have that fear. I mean, what am I going to say to somebody? And I might scare them off. I don't know. Did you know that God is offended when we don't reach out? Let me give you a couple more verses. I'm loading you up on verses. Ezekiel 34, 6. Listen to what God says to us. Ezekiel 34, 6. My sheep wandered throughout the mountains and on every hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the face of the earth. And listen to this part. And no one was seeking or searching for them. Nobody. Do you think God is heartbroken when nobody searches for the lost flock? And then I think about just two verses later in Ezekiel 34, 8. Listen very carefully. This is the Lord saying, he says, As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Did you see what happened? Now let me ask you a question. Who do you think the shepherds are? You're saying, well, the pastors are the shepherds. Right? The pastors are the shepherds and the pastors are the shepherd. I'm a vocational shepherd. I'm on staff. I'm a vocational shepherd. I get paid to be good. Right? But did you know that every connect group leader is a shepherd? You are a shepherd to everyone that God has put into your trust. You are their shepherd. Did you know that every small group leader is a shepherd of the people that God put into your trust? You know where they are. You're to keep track of those in your care. Did you know every Awana worker is a shepherd of those kids that God put into your trust? Did you know that every single deacon is a shepherd of those that God has put into your trust? You are to follow up. Make sure that you're taking care of the sheep. Now, you're voluntary shepherds. But listen, when you have the heart of God, you're going to battle for those who've gone astray. Everybody okay? When you have the heart of God, you're going to battle for those who have wandered. You search for those who are missing. Are you searching for those who've gone astray? Are you searching for that one lamb, or maybe in our case, hundreds of lambs that have wandered away? In Matthew 9, 36, I really sensed the heart of Christ. In Matthew 9, 36, it says this, But when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Do you see the compassion that Jesus has when he looked at the people, scattered and weary and worn? He had compassion. You know that word compassion is a very interesting word. Uh, it, it means to, uh, to feel such a sympathy that you feel it in your bowels. 
I mean, you have such sympathy, such compassion that it moves you, pun intended. In other words, you hurt so much for the scattered sheep that it makes your stomach ache. And it moves you to action. Compassion motivates you to action. Now listen, Abraham was a very spiritual man. He had compassion on his nephew, Lot. Now you ask, well, why do you need to be a spiritual person to battle for believers who are out of fellowship? Well, in Galatians 6.1, it says this. And listen carefully. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Paul said in Galatians 1, if you're going to restore a brother who's overtaken in any offense, you must be a spiritual person. Abraham was a spiritual man. You know, that word restore, it was a word that the fishermen would use when they were mending their nets, when they would restore their net. Or that word was also used by a doctor whenever he had to set a bone in place, just like Beth had recently done. And it was good to see Beth Williams back with us this morning, but uh, it's, it's with that kind of precision that that bone is set back into place, restored. And that word restored means to, to restore a, a brother or sister in Christ to their proper place in Christ. That's what it means. To restore. And to restore means that you have to have patience. means you have to have precision. It means that you need to be prudent. You have to be patient and gentle when you're resetting that bone. You have to have precision when you're resetting it. Spiritually, you have to have precision doctrinally. You have to be prudent practically. You, you need to know how to do it. You know, you really can't have gentleness to restore an erring brother. And you really can't have the awareness that you need to have without being a spiritual person. And Abraham was a spiritual man. You know why he was such a wise man? It's because he knew what it was like to wander from God. He knew what it was like. And he wanted to restore Lot. Let me give you one last verse. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 through 38, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We're engaging in Operation Abraham, and we need more laborers, to be honest. And, you know, last Sunday, we met for training and preparation right here in this, in this room. I wish I could say that every deacon was here for that training. That would not be true. I wish I could say that 100 people came to get ready for Operation Abraham. That would not be true. We need more laborers. Now, you might say, well, you know, I can't make it on Sundays at 5. You know, I realize that not everybody's going to be able to be here. But you know, you could say, God, who do I know that's out of fellowship with you that you can put on my heart that I might can reach out to them and try to help restore a brother or sister in Christ? You know, I think of a, a lady in our church who teaches a connect group. Her name is Janet Boyette. She has made it her aim, her heart, her passion to reach out to those in her connect group. She realizes it's her responsibility. And so she's made it her aim, her goal, her vision. Now, we might not get everyone, but it won't be because she's not trying. Let me ask you this. Do you know someone who's gotten disconnected for some reason? I don't know all the different reasons. Do you know someone who's out of fellowship? Do you know someone uh, that maybe you could say, 
God, I want to bring this person to the altar this morning. I want to, I want to ask you to give me an opportunity to reach out to them and try to restore them. Could, could you ask God to even put somebody's name on your heart? Would you be willing to do that this morning? Or maybe you're here and you say, you know, as I listen to this message, I realize I'm the one out of fellowship. I'm the one who's gone astray. And maybe this morning you just need to come and say, God, I want to be back in fellowship with you. Help me to go back and do the first things so that I can have that relationship and that fellowship with you. Or lastly, maybe you've never even trusted Christ to be your Savior. And you don't even have a relationship. Maybe this morning that's what you need to come do is to, is to come and have a relationship with Christ. You know, I talked to a young man on the front steps just a, a week ago. And he asked me a, a strange question. He said, he said I've got to ask you a question. He said, are you a, are you a preacher or a pastor? I said, well, yeah, you know, kind of, sort of. He said, well, um, he said, I need to ask you a question. He said, these, these things, these fingers. He said, did God make these? I said, well, yes, God made those. He said, well, why did he make them bad? He said, all of them he made good, but one of them he made bad. And it's this middle finger right here. He said, God made that finger bad. I said, no, sir, he didn't make those bad. I said, why did God make those fingers? He said, to work and do things. I said, did he make all of them? He said, yes. He said, yes. I said, well, God made them all good. Man is the one who makes things bad. God always makes it good. I said, but I've got a bigger question for you. I said, are you saved? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, I have no good reason. I said, i got one good reason for you to be saved. Because if you die without Christ, you are under his full wrath of God. Unless you're covered under the blood of Christ, if you die, you will face the full wrath of God. But whenever Jesus died on the cross for your sin, he bore the full wrath of God for your sin. He carried your sin to the cross. And it's, you know, I just heard on the radio this morning on the way to church, it was one of the greatest scandals ever to be made that, the, that we who were guilty were found innocent and the one who was innocent was found guilty. The greatest scandal. And maybe this morning, you are not covered by the blood of Christ. And maybe today you need to say, I need to be covered. I don't invite you to come. That's the most important decision you'll make. You know, Satan will always say, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. That's the devil's deception. And Jesus will say, today, 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 because it's his deliverance. Would you respond to Christ? Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as um, we come to this moment, we realize that we need your Holy Spirit to work in us. Show us areas where we need to change. Lord, maybe today... Um, there's somebody out of fellowship and maybe your Holy Spirit's been working on their heart. I pray you give them boldness to, to respond to that, courage to be obedient. Lord, I pray you give them the resolve to go back to do the first things. Lord, I, I think about the person here this morning that's uh, just out of fellowship. or I think also about the one who has no relationship. And Lord, maybe your Holy Spirit's working on their heart this morning. I pray you give them courage to to come and let us share with them how to know you. Now, Lord, I think about all of us in here know somebody who's out of fellowship that we can reach out to. Or, Lord, we just come to you and ask you to show us somebody that we can reach out to. There's so many who just need somebody to reach out and encourage them. And I just pray you help us to look for the lost sheep, to battle for believers. Well, Lord, we need more laborers, and I just pray you send more laborers that we may reach more people. And so, Lord, as we come to this invitation time, we just pray your Holy Spirit work according to your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? I want to ask you to respond how the Lord leads you. Would you do that? To every question.